Welcome to the world of digital sound. You know what the interesting thing is about these podcasts? Over the time I've been doing them, it's it's developed a kind of loyal fan base. Um, I hate to call it a fan base because that's not right. I feel like I've got a a real connection with you, the the faithful, you the the one thousand people that out there that listen to these week in week out when I do them and give great comments and talk about you know how they should be in a book, how they should be in a movie, uh, maybe we um, two podcasts ago we kind of got into something uh, because I'd um, I'd spent a lot of time thinking I'd had a drink and you know uh, the the tongue loosened and we talked about the demons and uh, that was a difficult one that was really really difficult Well, <laughs> this one will kind of take you a little bit further than that. One for the purists? Yeah, this is definitely one for the dedicated. Guys, this is Ken. This is the Ken Burton Show podcast story, giving you a little bit of uh, my rant um, and hopefully you'll listen to it hopefully you'll understand it if you haven't listened to any of these before please don't listen to this one go back and listen to the other ones before you get anywhere near this one and um as always uh any part all of this may or may not be true it is up to you the listener to decide whether or not you think it is and to put that in the comments which i read religiously i go back and back and back and read comments <laughs> some of them some of them are almost therapeutic you know some of them make me smile and some of them make me uh, laugh and then two podcasts ago and I wouldn't be talking about this either unless I've been drinking. And uh, let me just tell you that it's now three o'clock in the morning. And I hit the Jack Daniels about 11 o'clock. So I guess that's where we are. Two podcasts ago, somebody left a comment. And uh, <clears throat> I sat and thought about it. And I thought about it. And it spun in my head and I went to bed thinking about it and I woke up thinking about it. And <laughs> it was really simple. It was it was really simple. You are, Ken, a product of your environment. And it it just took so much of the guilt away. Put a few demons to rest that day. And that was... Uh, that was a hell of a thing. So, one for the purists. Are you ready? And wherever you're listening to this, whether it be in bed or on the train or whatever... I suggest that you cut off all external stimuli, anything that's going on around you. And this will, uh, this will give you another demon. Now, usually I hit the pause button when I'm uh, taking a break or having a drink or whatever, but fuck it, I ain't doing that today. Mmm. That is nice. I've run out of ice. Do you believe this? I've run out of ice. Can't fucking believe that. Oh, shit. Drop my chewing gum. There we go. Okay, so, um, let's take you 
uh, you the purist, you who understands the story, to the point where I was well out, well out of uh, the Coventry scene. It was um, probably about five years I've been out of the Coventry scene, and you, and you guys that that listen to the podcast stories, you know why I was out of the uh, out of the game. Um, and, and it was basically because I was deserted, you know, I was, I was left by friends, friends I'd known for 10 years. I was left by all my connections. I had to move, had to leave my flat. And you, you perhaps want to track back on some of the podcast stories to understand why that happened. But uh, this is this is a story that comes in between the time that I went out on my own and uh, the time that people started to talk to me again. This is in between that time. Now, when I left Coventry, I went to a few places. I started off in Birmingham, and uh, I was I was in. Um, Oh, God. Where did I go to start with? Jeez, I can't remember. I was in the city centre for a while, in a bedsit. Um, moved over to Broad Street. I had a, a place in Broad Street above a shop. And uh, I stayed there for a while. And I was looking for work as I, as I was out there. I didn't have anything, you know. There was um, there was me a suitcase and a car, and it was my car. <laughs> I'd actually bought one. I thought it it best, you know, when I when I got out. I thought, you know, maybe maybe now is the time to go straight. Now is the time to take a normal path, you know. Treat it as an opportunity and not necessarily a, a failure or a defeat, which is what I felt when I left. I didn't know anybody at that point. I, I, I actually had, for the first time, nobody I could talk to. There wasn't anyone in my life. Everybody I knew and I'd, I'd gone from not being like the, the popular kid on the block, but to, to having a multitude of friends, to walk in a pub and have loads of people say hi, to being completely and utterly isolated. So anyway, um, I was in this flat, well, that's it, in Broad Street. And uh, I'm trying to find some work. And I'm thinking, well, what do I know? You know, what do I know? Um, I know a little bit about mechanics. So it's a good plan. I'll go and get a job as a mechanic. And I looked in the, the papers and stuff. And uh, there, was a, there was a role uh, came up for a PDI technician. That's uh, what they call pre-delivery inspection. And it was at this... Um, compound and basically there was a very popular driving school around in those days they don't exist now and uh, what they had was uh, shitloads of mini metros and they used to put in dual controls into these things and you know a little bit of other stuff and then uh, when the when the cars came back after they'd been out a year the, the dual controls were removed and, you know, the car was put back to a normal standard. So, you know, there was a combination of two things, taking brand new cars, putting in dual controls and, you know, PDI in the car, making sure all the brake pressures and tyre pressures and everything was right. And then uh, taking the cars that came back. So I, t I kind of turned up at this place, you know, having phoned... And uh, I got an interview. And I walked through the workshop and it was a 
it was just a, like a long warehouse type situation where there were there were maybe 10 15 ramps on the left hand side there were pdi bays on the right hand side and uh you know the there was probably and there was a paint shop and there was a body shop there was probably about 60 70 people were there <laughs> and uh they took me up to the offices and uh, a couple of people you know interviewed me and said what do you know about mechanics what do you know about cars i mean yeah i know this i know that have you got any formal qualification no i haven't because i was kicked out of college and you know so um they didn't look very impressed to say the least <laughs> but they must have been desperate because i got a phone call that afternoon to say you've got the job you start on monday Monday came around, I went down to that place, they gave me a set of overalls, they gave me the basic toolkit, the borrow toolkit, and it's something they give to all new mechanics, where uh, most mechanics have their own snap-on kit, or it's not really snap-on these days, I don't think, but in those days it was all kind of snap-on kit, so uh, I didn't have my own toolkit, so they gave me the loaner. They put me on PDIs and it was a question of, you know, put me with this great guy called Gavin. And Gavin spent like half an hour with me. We did two cars. Yeah, seriously, two cars in half an hour. And um, he was he was like, you know, shit, you've got it. You know, Normally it takes a couple of hours for people to pick this shit up, but you've got it, that's fine, carry on. And uh, I started to PDI cars and it was... It was uh, repetitive. It was mind-blowingly boring. You know, you you waved your hand. Somebody came over and collected your car that you were working on when it was done. Uh, he would then bring you a new car. You do your PDI on it and put the dual controls on it. And you've got 15 minutes to do this. <laughs> and then... The next one turns up. It was it was such a factory, you know. There was no life to the place whatsoever. Um, I spent the first day doing that, and uh, second day I got in, and everybody kind of met at the canteen, and everybody got there early because the canteen did breakfast. So I thought, yeah, it's a good plan because I'm not <laughs> not exactly eating that well at the moment. So I thought breakfast would be a good idea. So I turned up, you know, half seven. We didn't start till half eight. And uh, I walked in the canteen, ordered breakfast. Sat down at a table on my own. And some bloke came and sat next to me. He introduced himself, you know, and there was... Uh, friendly to him he was friendly to me <laughs> and he said uh oh my name is um mark and uh you know i i'm the manager of the past department oh right okay you know pleased to meet you and all this yeah anything you need like let me know i said well you know anything i need i'll come up and get it from the past department. no 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 you know you don't get it mate you don't get it anything you need outside of this place let me know thought oh right okay <laughs> so you're bent in other words thanks very much for letting me know i said uh you know i don't i don't really dabble a lot on the outside i don't do a lot on the outside uh so you know probably won't be the case and he said oh, okay and then he gave me this really ridiculous throwaway line as he got up and went to walk away he said, I'll, um, I'll come for your 50 at the end of the month. And then he walked away. And I thought, what the fucking hell was that? <laughs> what the fuck was that? Never mind. Carried on eating my breakfast. And um, a couple of days later, I kept myself to myself because I was... I was Desperately trying to keep a low profile. Not that that's possible, but I was. And um, I got talking to uh, 
couple of guys um, who were, you know, after a few days, who were quite friendly. And uh, we sat there and we were having lunch, again in the canteen. And I said, uh, you don't believe this, but this fucking uh, parts guy, <laughs> he said something about, I'll come for you for your 50 or something. And they went, ah, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. I said, what's that about then? It's said, well, he's, he's basically um, one of the director's sons. So what's that got to do with anything? Yeah, he's... We all pay him. What the fuck you know what you pay him for? Um, to keep our jobs. I was like, what? I said, yeah, we all, we all pay him. Like 50 quid a month. I mean, we're, you know, we're all getting like a decent salary. So we all, you know... Well, the salary wasn't bad anyway. It wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. And uh, we all we all give this guy fifty quid. Well, why the fucking hell do you do that? Um, because he's only got to make mention of somebody he thinks doesn't fit in, and that person will get fired. And at the moment, jobs don't grow on trees. We need these jobs. Some of us got families. Some of us like working here. And uh, we pay him our 50. I said, you're fucking joking me. Surely, you're joking me. All you guys. I mean, seriously, everybody in this place is giving this guy 50 notes. What the fuck? And they were like, yeah, yeah. I know, it's mad. So what, so what happens if you don't give me 50? Said you find yourself Monday morning with a letter in your hand. Your services are no longer required. Well, that's just fucking nuts. I mean, that, <laughs> are you serious? That is just fucking nuts. And can't you guys get together and go and see the managers and, and just expose this guy for what he's doing? Uh, a couple of guys have tried that. <clears throat> and those couple of guys are no longer working here. Okay, so in other words, he's taking these 50s, then he's sharing it with the guy in the chair in the office. Well, that's, you know, pretty much what they gathered. Okay. <laughs> that's really interesting. And I am not going to put up with that for one flying fucking second so I carried on and the more I worked there the more friends I made as soon as I made a couple of mates like a lot of other people uh, kind of said hello to me and were quite friendly with me which uh, which was great people were asking me about who I was you know where I came from and stuff and I was being really fucking vague. There was a, a valeting bay at the the bottom of the workshop. And there were four girls in this valeting bay. And these girls were quite interested because there's a new guy in town, you know. Oh, come to the club with us. You know, come and have a drink with us. And I was... Um, I think I was still... Looking back at it now... Looking back at it now I think I was quite traumatised by what had happened in Coventry and I was quite quite desperate really to just get my thoughts together just get my head together understand what had happened and where I was going from there so the last thing I needed to do was complicate that with relationships of any type, whether they be friends or girls or whatever, you know. But they kept asking, they kept asking. And uh, in Birmingham at that time, there was a place called The Dome. And it was the nightclub. 
It was the place. And a few of the guys were saying, you know, it's such and such his birthday, we're going down, you know. So we all went down to the dome. <laughs> I met the guys on the door. Um, one of them knew one of the bouncers, which got us the head of the queue and got us in. And standard nightclub, you know, music so loud you can't hear yourself think. And uh, we had a good few beers at the bar. A couple of the girls were quizzing me because I was like, Mr. Dark, fucking mysterious. <laughs> uh, I didn't tell them anything. In fact, I, I think that was part of the attraction. <laughs> I didn't tell them anything. But they were quite, um, quite friendly and, you know. I became... A little bit obsessed with the whole 50 notes a month thing. And uh, everybody I met was asking about it. And they were all being really vague, almost embarrassed to be telling me about this. I mean, it, was, it wasn't almost embarrassed. They were embarrassed. And I said, I just couldn't understand why these normal, sensible people were allowing this one guy to take £50 off them every month. Each. You know, I mean, what the fuck was that about? So I asked some of the girls. And uh, they were really sheepish. But said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, job's hard to come by. We've got a job. The fact is that, you know, you've got to think of it, really, as we get paid X. And then, um, you know, this extra 50 is not ours, it's his. And if, if you get your mindset into that, you know, that's our guarantee of having a job here. And then one of the girls that was there... She, she said to me in the dome that night, you are going to be trouble. I said, what makes you think that? She said, because I can fucking see it. I can see it in your eyes. And I was torn. I was torn between this low profile, keep myself away from everything, that had gone on. And this complete fucking dickhead who, <laughs> in normal circumstances, a phone call would have seen this guy in hospital with every fucking bone in his body broken and every penny he had taken away from him and the fucking relative. Well, I wasn't there anymore, you know. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, I felt absolutely naked. There wasn't the backup, you know. There wasn't... My whole support network. Just gone. I thought, Jesus Christ, you know. The, the people like this should not exist they just shouldn't exist and it can't go on I can't walk away from it carried on working with these guys for another couple of weeks and we were getting close to the end of the month and in those days we got paid actually paid with a pay packet which was an envelope with money in it I know, that's a weird concept for you young guys to understand, but that's how we used to get paid. And uh, had a payslip, or the payslip would be on the envelope, and um, it would have physical, you know, pound notes in it, and 20s and 30s and, you know, 50s and all the rest of it. So we got paid, we got paid. On a Friday, you got paid every four weeks, got paid on a Friday. And uh, as we drove out of this place, 
um, Mr. Dickhead, parts manager, had a car parked on the slipway to the industrial estate where we were working, and it was on a kind of lay-by type situation, and people would pull up, and uh, he'd go to the window, and then that person would drive off. And I stood and watched it. I stood and watched it. One by one. And then I drove up. And uh, <laughs> he opened the passenger door. And he just kind of crouched down. Said, you got my 50. And I said, uh, no, no, I haven't. Why is that? I said, well, you know, my my rent's big um, this time round because uh, it's my first month in the place. So uh, I just, I haven't got it. And he went, all right, it's not a problem. Next time round, 100. But don't worry about it, you know, you'll be okay. I went, oh, cheers, cheers. And uh, drove off. Over the next um, two weeks, spoke to a few people about this. Only he got wind that I was asking questions and uh, he wasn't happy about it. And I'm sitting there having uh, lunch in the canteen. And he walked over with two guys. He always had these two fucking guys with him. And he said, uh, I hear you're asking a lot of questions. I said, about what? I said, about my, um, my bonus scheme. I said, no, not really. Just trying to get my head around it. He said, the only thing you need to get your head around is that you're going to pay me 150 next time. And I said, um, actually, 50 plus 50 is 100. Yeah, he said, but uh, in your case, we're going to make an exception. It's 150. And that's what you're going to give us. Uh, okay. And he said, the best thing you can do stop asking fucking questions before it becomes 200 and then he emptied my plate over me just pushed it into my lap and just said to me don't be a dickhead walked off with his two big fucking fat cunt mates I wasn't, um, I wasn't, wasn't used to it. I didn't, oh God, it's hard to explain. I'm so used to being able to pick a phone up. You know, getting some backup, going in there and doing something. I never felt, I never felt so alone in my entire life than I did that day I felt small and I felt weak and I knew that that wasn't me it just wasn't me <sighs> I left that day Went back to my bedsit and uh, uh, one of the girls came round, uh, knock on the door, and she came in and we uh, we sat and had a drink, and she said to me, "I saw you today." I said, "Yeah, not my uh, finest hour." She said, no, 
I saw the look in your eye. Whatever you're going to do, whatever you're thinking about doing, don't fucking do it. Now, I was saying, well, you know, what's Big Man and his mates going to do? Worst they can do is get me sacked. And she said, no. Worst that they can do is you can find yourself in a hospital bed like somebody she knew found themselves in a hospital bed because he couldn't pay and he couldn't pay because he got a girlfriend and a kid and they were living in a flat in Birmingham and they were being hit for rent which they couldn't afford so he couldn't pay So Dickhead and his mates put the guy in hospital. According to her, anyway. I didn't know the guy. Never met the guy. And I sat there with this... um, I had this bottle of Bell's, right? Bell's whiskey. And uh can't remember why I bought it even. But anyway. It was sitting there in in my bed set. Litre bottle, Bell's whiskey. She'd had a glass and then she left. And when I woke up the following day it was half eleven. My head was like unbelievably <laughs> smashing against the side of my brain. I mean, it was one of those. It was one of those days where you um, you wake up, your eyes open, you attempt to move your head off the pillow, but your brain stays where it is. Oh fuck! It hurt. It hurt. One of the worst hangovers I have ever, ever experienced. Psychologists call it a depression hangover. I know that because that's been explained to me since. When you drink and you're depressed, drink makes you more depressed. You get yourself into a spiral and you carry on drinking to bring yourself out of the depression only the drink is putting you more and more into the depression until you physically pass out and that's what happened that night what I couldn't believe was um, the empty bottle there is no way I drank a litre of Bell's whiskey I mean, for fuck's sake, I'd be dead, surely. But then again, it could have been half a bottle. I could have spilled the rest on the carpet. I mean, the bottle was on its side. I don't know. I don't know. I phoned in and, and said I was sick. And I was given a bollocking for it over the phone. You've only been here, you know, a couple of months. You can't really be phoned in sick. Just all wasn't working out. I didn't like where I was living. I didn't like... (laughs) I didn't like the fact I had no friends. I didn't like the fact that I was working in this shithole. And I definitely, definitely had an issue with this guy. I spent the rest of the day drinking water, watching TV on one of these little 14-inch black and white portables. (laughs) 
spent the whole day doing that just sitting there looking at this TV oh yeah there was a that day there was a fight in the bedsit there was some um, I heard a lot of shouting and screaming going on downstairs um, I opened the door and looked out there's some twat stood there with a knife threatening some girl and there was a bloke there and uh, I heard the police sirens and I, <laughs> I just thought I can't be fucking bothered <laughs> oh god I would never have walked away from a situation like that ever walked away from that one back in the room shut the door I had another big glass of water <laughs> just listened as the cops came a lot more commotion and then it all went quiet went to bed that night um, God must have been uh, it was late I didn't have a drink I stayed completely sober didn't have a drink and I just thought I need to regain a sense of self I need to I need to regain some sort of semblance of me I was losing too much I was I'd lost a lot of material things I'd lost a lot of friendships I'd lost an awful lot of well everything that was around me but what I couldn't lose what I couldn't face to lose was who I was And that was a huge problem. I woke up early the following morning. And I got dressed and went downstairs, got in the car, and went to work. And uh first thing I did was um go into the canteen. have a really big glass of orange juice I mean a seriously big fucking glass of orange juice it was probably well, it was about, probably about 7 o'clock by now a couple of people had arrived and uh, people were saying to me you right, Kim? I said no not really oh really what was that then? Because, gents, today is the day it's all going to change. No one understood that. How could they? I took a, <laughs> took a wander up to the parts department. And uh, I sat there and waited. There was a security door. Um, and then there was like a hatch where you you got your parts from. And Dickhead and both of his goons worked in the parts department. And I waited. And uh, the first one to arrive was one of the goons. And he said to me, what the fuck are you doing up here? I said, look, this can be very, very simple because you won't understand it if it's complicated because you're very, very stupid. You can either take the rest of the day off or your life 
is never going to be the same again. And he was like, what the fuck are you talking about? I said, dude, you have got to listen to me. Go home, phone in sick, or your life is going to change. And he told me to fuck off. And he punched the code into the door. And I punched him in the back. Slightly to the right. So that I caught his ribs. And he fell through the door. And as he fell through the door, I stamped in his face. He kind of shimmied his way backwards into the parts department. Still on his back. And there was a fire extinguisher just by the door. And I picked the fire extinguisher up and I hit him with it. And it fucking launched him. It just... He, he was semi-upright, semi-down. But he wasn't conscious. When he hit the ground, he wasn't conscious. And he was bleeding like fuck out the side of his head. And I stood there and I waited. I had a little look around the past department and there were a few things there. There was a piece of scaffolding pipe. It was about two foot long, just over. I thought this will do. And the next person that comes through that fucking door is going to feel this around his head. Goon number two turned up. About ten minutes later. Goon number one was moaning at this point. Not that I gave a shit. As soon as he walked through the door. He got this right around his fucking head. And he hit the deck like a ton of bricks. And... Uh, fell over a table and it was like it was like it was almost like a comical scene really when he when he hit the table the table collapsed and you often see that in in movies and shit where you know someone falls on a table and you know i always thought you know in real life somebody falls on, on a table they'd fall off again you know they wouldn't collapse the table but it was a kind of desk type tabley thing anyway it collapsed and he hit the deck. And he held on to the side of his head. Still conscious. And I said to him. If you attempt to stand up again. I will fucking take your head off. And he just kind of nodded. Scared shitless. <laughs> I love how these fucking big guys are so fucking brave when they're in twos and threes get them on their own they're fucked and I waited and the door opened again and sure enough it was dickhead the second the door opened Dickhead saw that one of his guys was down. And it, it must have put him on edge because he put his arm up uh, when I swung the pipe. And I actually heard his arm crack. And he kind of screamed out. So, I grabbed him around the back of his hair, and because the parts department was on the second floor, 
I threw him down the stairs. And uh, he got a fair amount of damage going down the stairs. I followed him down. He was still shouting to me that I was a dead man. And I stood him up and again he said to me, You're such a fucking dead man. You're a fucking dead, mate. I punched him in the face maybe six, seven times. Uh, Even when I knew it had had the desired effect. I wanted to make sure I brought the, the point home. And I marched him out to the car park. And put him very squarely uh, into the back of my car. And then I stood there by the car and waited until his uh, relative, who was from the offices, turned up. There was a little bit in between that, actually, that we'll tell you about because a number of other people arrived. And they could see what was going on. And a couple of people said to me, Jesus Christ, what's going on? What's going on? And then they saw that Dicker was in the back of my car, smashed to fuck and screaming. And they kind of held their hands up and walked away. And one of the girls came up. She said, Ken, don't do this. I said to her, just walk the fuck away. Just walk away. And she said to me, call me when this is over. (laughs) Oh, call me when this is over. Fucking dumb bitch. His relative turned up, and uh, as it happens, he turned up with one of the secretaries. I shouted him over. I said to him, how are you doing? I'm sorry, what do you want? So I want you to look in the back of my car. And he did. And then his face dropped, and he went white. And I said to him, each of the people you've taken money from in here gets that back today. And if that happens, you get him back. If that doesn't happen, you're going to find him floating somewhere face up. And... He was gobsmacked. He was absolutely gobsmacked. He couldn't believe what was happening. And I'm still convinced to this day, you know, that he thought... uh, He thought that what he was doing was petty crime and that, you know, it wasn't going to get heavy and... I told him I'd be back at five. And uh, by then, I wanted to hear that everybody had been paid. And I also told him that there's a certain guy who ended up in hospital who not only is going to get his job back, but he's going to get a big fat fucking bonus at least five grand and this all needs to happen by five o'clock and then I told him two other things you can start a war over this 
Maybe you can make a few phone calls. I don't know. I don't know how you're connected. I said, but I can make some phone calls. And I can bring a war on you you wouldn't fucking believe. Or you can phone the cops. Tell them what's been going on. And then we'll have a conversation about how you've taken money off all these poor bastards. It's up to you, mate. And I got in my car and drove off. Just left him stood there. Like a twat in the middle of the car park. Looking like a fucking ghost because he was white. <laughs> anyway, I drove out to um, uh, one of the places that uh, we used to go in Birmingham. There was a... Shady district, not really. It was an ex scrapyard that was used on the odd occasion. And I took this kid out, kid guy, out to this scrapyard, and he's screaming like fuck in the car about how his hand's broken and needs medical attention and all this. Couldn't stand it. Stuck a gag on him. Stuck, um, <laughs> I stuck a rag in his mouth and uh, gaffer taped him. He was just so fucking annoying. I didn't give a shit about this guy. What a fucking piece of shit. You know, there's a, there's a thing called um, natural justice, which is what we used to practice back in the day. Everyone did. Everyone practiced natural justice. If you robbed an old lady, you deserved a very good kicking. And you deserved to pay back everything you fucking took. Old ladies weren't robbed. Not in those days. If you mugged someone on the street, you were likely to be found and fucked up. Because that's just the way it works. It was the natural justice of things. It doesn't happen today. So, I've got this guy gagged and shit, and we were at the scrapyard, and uh, I dragged him out of the back of the car. And he's still fucking screaming, even through the gag, he is still screaming. So, I put a number of questions to him. How many people have had their lives adversely affected by you? And he just muffled. I said, how many people have struggled to pay bills because of you? How many people have been in that position where they've been so elated to finally get a job only to find out there's some scumbag like you skimming? I said, it's not right. And it's not right that you're going to go back five o'clock and, you know, your relative is going to have paid everyone off. And then I'm just going to leave you. And then in a few weeks, you're going to start all over again when I am well out of the picture. Because I will be well out of the picture. I'm not going to hang around. No. No. I think... You need a reminder, a permanent reminder, to not do anything like this again. So, I 
took his hand and one by one I broke every finger on that hand bent it back and then snapped it as I was bending it back so <laughs> somebody else taught me that actually a knuckle break and a base break and that finger will never quite recover all four fingers on one hand he screamed like a fucking pig. So he got one broken arm. On the other arm, he had a handful of broken fingers. To be honest, I, I'd have been quite happy to kneecap the fucker as well. Because I just, I just felt that he deserved it. I mean, when you inflict pain on other people surely you deserve some payback surely there's got to be some sort of natural justice pushed him back in the car and uh, we went for a drive round And I went and got some lunch. <laughs> I sat there eating fish and chips while he was in the back of the car screaming like a pig. <laughs> I had to turn the radio up quite loud. <laughs> Five o'clock came. And I, I had no idea what to expect. Oh, fuck it. This, this dickhead has either phoned the cops or he's phoned some boys or whatever. Pulled into the lay-by. At five. And the guy's car is there. And he got out. And there's only him in it. And I'm thinking, fucking hell, you know. And I'm looking around me thinking, where's the rest of where's the rest of it going to happen from? You know, which way is it going to come from? And he's, he got out, came up to me, and he said, uh, uh, it's done. I said, really? Yeah, yeah, it's done. It's done. And how much have you paid back? I said, all of it. Since we started this, all of it. So what about the people that have left and, and gone? And, you know. And he was really, he was quite upset at this point. He, you know, I can't trace everybody. I don't know where they've all gone. I can't give everybody back everything. Quizzed him for about 10 minutes. And then I just said, okay, better take your boy. And he went to the back of the car. And uh, helped the guy out. I thought he was going to puke when he saw the guy's hand. <laughs> Honestly, did. And he, he helped him back to his car and he put him in the back of his car. And I, I said to him, there's one last thing. He said, what's that? I, I beckoned him over. And he came towards my car. And I grabbed him around the back of his head. Smashed his face into the bonnet of my car.
so people like you discuss me. Another time. <laughs> Another place. You'd be dead. Think about that. And drove off. I, th I then went, uh, packed up my shit out of the bedsit and um, cleared all my gear and went down to my next port of call, which was London. And uh, I actually, I sold the car on the way. Uh, sold the car at a Sangnam car dealership and uh, put a deposit on a bedsit in London. And I was in Soho for a while. I'm not sure whether or not I did any good, really. Did I stave off the inevitable? Did they just go back to doing it afterwards? Couple of chances, you know. Stealing fucking bread out of the mouths of other people. I did tell them I changed their lives. Never heard anything about it after that. From that day to this. As I say, I don't know if these guys got paid the money back. I'm assuming they did looking at this amount of fear on that guy's face. But I know that I felt good. I felt clean. And I just... Just felt inspired to go on. I mean, it wasn't something I was going to do. I'm not, I wasn't fucking Batman, you know. I'm not going to go and right the wrongs of the world. It was just... In my world, he would never have got away with that. And in my world, they didn't. Simple as that. This has been Ken. This has been the, uh, the Ken Burton Show. podcast story for this week for those of you who follow who um, who listen to these and I've probably got about three or four stories worth telling about the time after Coventry and when I finally got away from it because I was probably about 25, somewhere around there. When it ended for me, and um, there was like a five year gap. Some shit went down during those five years. Stories worth telling, I think. I'll be more honest than that. Demons worth exercising. Because let's face it, this that's what this is. I just, I just feel like I can talk about this, and if I talk about this, then I never have to think about it again. 
I never have to I never have to let it enter my mind again and I can exercise that and that is a demon that's gone and I read your comments you know and I, I read the comments and people say yeah you know you what you did was right what you did was was real and what you did is what you had to do and is there's a kind of level of reassurance about that I don't know maybe maybe I've told this story wrong maybe I've come across as being a guy trying to be heroic and it, it was fuck all to do with being a hero I just couldn't stand it, you know. Couldn't bear it. Because in my world, shit like that would never exist. And it happened. And it happens. And it wasn't the only time that I did something like that and it's you know these these are stories yet to be told but once they're told they're told and that's it they're gone they're they're gone and i'm erasing these from my memory i don't ever want to think about this again ever No, to, uh, some people look at these and think, you know, oh, it's a really good story, but you, you know, you weren't there. You didn't see it. You don't. You don't wake up and see these guys' fucking faces in the middle of the night. Jesus. I'm out.